Romans 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to the book of Romans this morning and we anticipate that you will do a work in our hearts this morning as well as throughout our time through the book of Romans. We depend upon you, so we look to your spirit to come and to help us. So work in our hearts that we would love these words and that we would want to follow you and be at your service. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we begin this first sermon on what will be a series of messages through Romans, I want to provide you with just a brief introduction to the letter. Uh, Romans is the longest of Paul's letters, and therefore it contains the longest and most thorough teaching that we have of the Apostle Paul on the gospel. For that reason, it has probably been the most well-loved of Paul's letters. I still clearly remember where I was and what I was doing when I first fell in love with the book of Romans. It was the summer of uh, 1995, and I was working at Hidden Acres Bible Camp in Iowa uh, the summer prior to my junior year of college, and it was required of all the counseling staff to read a good Christian nonfiction book during the summer. So I asked my pastor what he would recommend. He said, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. As I read that great book, I noticed Packer quoting from Romans all the time, just bringing in Romans so often throughout the chapters of that book. So then I started studying the book of Romans together with uh, some of the other counselors there at the camp that summer, and my eyes were open to the vast wonders of the gospel and the supremely glorious God of the gospel that was being revealed to me through Romans that summer. I was enthralled. Uh, I couldn't get enough of Romans. I I continued reading and studying Romans regularly in my daily devotional times. Uh, I'd work my way through Romans, and then I'd try to read other books of the Bible for a few weeks, but then always getting back into the book of Romans again and uh, teaching it as often as I could uh, when given the opportunity. So that pattern continued then for several years uh, after college for me. Now, if you are a Christian, then maybe you have your own uh, love story with the book of Romans. Um, When I announced that I'd be 
beginning this series on Romans a couple weeks ago on uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, one of the guests that we had with us uh, that Sunday came up to me after the service and told me how excited he was that we'd be going through Romans because it was his favorite book. And he admitted he kind of wished that he'd be able to be here for the messages, but doesn't live close enough uh, to come. So I just asked him to please pray for me as I prepare and uh, preach these sermons. And I want to ask each of you to pray for me as well. And pray for us. Pray for us as we work our way through this amazing letter together. So Romans is an amazing book, and we definitely have our work cut out for us. Uh, I anticipate that the Lord will do his, his transforming work in our hearts as we spend time in this book together. Um, now, will some things be hard to understand as we go through it? Yes, yes. Uh, I know that there will be some things in Romans very hard for us to understand because they're very hard for me to understand. Uh, but it's not because of the deficiencies in the book of Romans, it's because of the deficiencies, of course, in us, in our weak minds and our, our hard and, and sinful hearts. It would be hard for us to, to hear some of these things and to understand them. So, so pray for us, pray for me, that the Lord may truly bless us as we begin this series through the book of Romans together. Um, if you haven't yet fallen in love with this book, I pray that you will in these coming months. Now, Romans is about the gospel of God. And these opening verses of the book contain a condensed version of the gospel. Paul proclaims here in these verses that God's Son came in the flesh, that he was the one that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to, that Jesus is the Christ, and that his resurrection declared with power that he is God's Son, and his work elicits faith and obedience, which is the basis of the grace and peace that he grants to us. So the whole book of Romans will be unpacking that message that Paul introduces for us here and what that message means. So our main theme from these opening verses is that we ought to pay special attention to God's good news concerning Jesus Christ, which transforms sinners into saints. We ought to pay special attention to God's good news, God's gospel, concerning Jesus Christ, which transforms sinners into saints. So the gospel of God is the central theme of these first seven verses, as it is the central theme of the whole book. Paul's main concern here is that his readers, which now include us, know and understand the gospel. You know that it's something that you should think about as we begin this morning. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel well enough to explain it to somebody else? If you are a Christian, then the gospel is something you both need to know and be able to teach to others. And Romans will help us do that. So I've labeled the divisions here, the first seven verses, with three headings related to Paul's mission. The first is the calling. That's verses 1 through 4, um, where, where Paul's focusing on the calling of proclaiming the gospel. And then verses 5 and 6, we have the goal, the goal of Paul's proclamation 
of the gospel. And then verse 7, we have the gospel-centered greeting that Paul gives to his readers, uh, the believers who were in Rome. So first, the calling, the calling there in verses 1 through 4. Now, as with most of the letters we have in the New Testament, this letter begins with identifying who the letter is from, who the author of the letter is. Uh, In that time and place, the proper way to address letters was to begin with who the letter is from. And then you would write a greeting for whom the letter is to, who it's addressed to. Uh, Romans here follows that pattern. So it begins with an introduction of the author of the letter, his name being the very first word, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is actually the author's second name. We are introduced to, to him in the book of Acts as a young man named Saul in Acts 7, verse 58. There he was a part of a group who were stoning one of the leading evangelists of the early church in Jerusalem, a Christian man named Stephen. And then in Acts 8, we are then told that Saul was an enthusiastic leader of a great persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. And by his own admission, Saul was trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ during that time. But here, as he begins the this letter to believers in Rome, something has changed. He's a different man. He's a different man. And rather than, rather than identifying himself with his given name, Saul, which of course was named after the first king of Israel, he has taken a more Greek name, Paul, which literally means the small one, the small one. Paul now wants to be known as the small one who is serving the great one, Christ Jesus. He calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ. That is, Paul has Christ as his master. He is completely at his master's disposal. Christ demands total allegiance, not just isolated acts of worship, once or twice a week, and Paul recognizes this. And therefore, Paul has, has gladly, joyfully given over control of his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is something that Christ calls all believers to do. Remember uh, his calling in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Here's Jesus calling to his disciples. Come to me, he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christ is calling us to come and serve him, to come and be his slave. But once we do, we will find the yoke that he puts upon us to be incredibly freeing and life-giving. For we will be set free from the dreadful, destructive slavery of sin, and we can only have one master. So who is your master? 
Who are you serving? For Paul and those like him who have been transformed by the grace of God, our one master is Christ. And when we devote our lives to serving him, we end up doing the very thing we were created for, glorifying our creator and savior with our lives, with our bodies, with our minds, with our hearts, with our gifts. It's what we were made to do. And there's freedom in finding that. Paul has found that freedom. He is a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus. And then he describes his calling here. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's service to God was not his idea. He didn't fill out some career aptitude test, and the best option that came up for him from the answers that he put down was apostle. Uh, Paul did an interview with the church's HR department and ended up being assigned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. No, this was a calling given to him by the Lord Jesus himself. In Acts 9.15, the Lord Jesus tells another believer, a man named Ananias, in a vision that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that is what Paul means by being called and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel means good news. It is a message from God that must be proclaimed. And Paul was called to proclaim it to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So that is what we find him doing here through this letter. As I said, the main theme of the letter of Romans is the gospel of God. Paul introduces us to it here in these first few, few verses. And then at the very end of the book, in the last verses of chapter 16, we find Paul mention it there again. In fact, we, we, we find there some of the very same themes that we see in these initial verses in chapter 1. So if you want to just turn quickly to the end of the book, chapter 16. You'll kind of get a sense of how long uh, Romans is here, 16 chapters. At the very end, in a section probably labeled the doxology, as it is in, in my translation, verse 25 through, through 27, as I read this, kind of listen for some of the same things we just heard in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching or proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the, prof- through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is the, the gospel of God then? What is this this good news that Paul was to proclaim, he's called uh, to proclaim? Let's look at verses 2 through 4. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 2 here, 
we learn that God's gospel is not something new. It was actually the fulfillment of the promises that God made through his prophets in the Old Testament. This means that the gospel of God was was not God's plan B. Uh, we, We can see in the Old Testament that God was always pointing toward how he was going to redeem his people through the obedient life and sacrificial death of his son, who would then be raised again from the dead and reign as king forever. So the gospel is not a break with the past. It is the continuation and the consummation of the past, of what we have read in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the New Testament, then, there's far more continuity with the Old Testament than we think there is. We tend to think that there's no continuity at all. It's completely different. But there is far more continuity there than we think. Verse 3 tells us that the gospel of God is centered on the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, who was truly a man, having descended from King David according to the flesh, again showing the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, and he was truly God, as the resurrection declared or determined him to be, the Son of God. As one Bible teacher put it, the resurrection publicly announced the rank that Jesus possessed as the Son of God and Lord. He was always the the Son of God. The resurrection just shouted it out to the world. This is the Son of God. And here's the major difference between Christianity and all other world religions. When you consider other religions, be it Islam, uh, Hinduism, Mormonism, or Buddhism, only in Christianity do you have the founder or the leading figure of the religion prove that his teachings can be fully trusted and that he is who he claimed to be because of the fact he rose again from the dead and that there were many documented eyewitnesses uh, to that resurrection. There are eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. So how can we be sure that we can trust what Jesus said? Well, because he rose again from the dead, just like he said he would. How do we know that Jesus really is the Son of God? Well, because he was crucified like he said he would be, and then three days later, he rose again from the dead, again, like he said he would. No one else has done that. No one else can can make that claim. So, So follow Jesus. He really is someone you need to pay attention to. And Paul was called by the risen Lord Jesus to proclaim that message. And that is what we are doing and that what he was doing here through the letter to the Romans. Secondly, the goal. The goal is in verses 5 and 6. The goal of his proclamation of the gospel. What is this goal? What is the goal for Paul's writing this letter and of our reading and studying this letter together here on Sunday mornings? Why would, why would, would we do this? Well, we see both the goal and we also see the purpose for that goal revealed here in verses 5 and 6. Look at those together here. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you 
who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So it has been said that if you wanted to sum up the the gospel in just one word, that one word would be grace. That's what we see here in verse 5. Paul shows that grace is what we receive through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, we receive God's undeserved love and blessing for sinners that was revealed in all that Christ has done. Through Christ, God has freely given the forgiveness of sins, eternal life in his Son, and has imputed Christ's righteousness to all who have repented and trusted in Christ as their Savior. So as we make our way through Romans, we will go in-depth into all of of what this grace uh, that is revealed to us here in this book, this grace has been given to us through Christ, but we will uh, see that the goal of this grace is not just so that we will be forgiven of our sins, although that's wonderful, it's not just so that we could go to heaven, although that's wonderful as well, and the goal of the grace is not even just so that we can have a relationship with God. The goal of the proclamation of the gospel is, as Paul says, to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The goal of Paul's preaching and writing, and in fact the goal of my preaching, is not just so that you would have faith, but that you would have the obedience of faith. We shouldn't be surprised at this. What Paul is getting at with the obedience of faith is just what he was alluding to back in verse 1. Paul wasn't always Paul, the slave of Christ. He was once Saul, the blasphemer of Christ Jesus. He didn't always travel around the Mediterranean Sea trying to make disciples of Christ and plant churches. No, no, he used to travel around Judea trying to arrest Christ's disciples and put a stop to the influence that the churches had on his people. But something happened. Something happened to Paul. Paul was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rather than believing Jesus was an imposter, leading people astray, Paul came to believe that Jesus was indeed Lord, and that salvation was only found through faith in him. And Paul's saying here that when one comes to saving faith in in, in Christ Jesus, that faith transforms that person's life. It's the obedience of faith. It's, It's obedience that consists in faith in Christ, or the obedience that comes from faith in Christ. This is not just obeying the call to believe the gospel. It is the obedience that is generated in one who has come to believe the gospel. We will go into much more about what this means as we make our way through Romans. Uh, This is a big deal for Paul. But for now, you must know that God is not just interested in saving your soul from hell. Christ did not just live a righteous, obedient life and then sacrificially lay down his life on the cross so that we can just look forward to an eternity in heaven. Just believe Jesus and go to church on Sunday, and that's pretty much it for our faith 
in Jesus. If someone is, is a true believer in the gospel of God, well, they will also want to obey the Lord's word. As one Bible teacher said, true faith, by its very nature, includes in itself the sincere desire and will to obey God in all things. Like Paul, we have become slaves of Christ. If we have become slaves of Christ, we will seek to do our master's bidding at all times. We will want to. It will be our desire to. And we will find joy and strength in doing what his word tells us to do. That is the goal of the gospel. Transformed lives for God. Ongoing obedience is the fruit of ongoing faith. So if you profess to be a Christian, then you need to consider, you need to think about this. Does this description match up with how you are living your life? Are you seeking to obey the word of your master? Do you even know what your master has commanded in his word? The obedience of faith in those who, as Paul says in verse 6, are called to belong to Jesus Christ is the goal of the gospel. And the purpose of it all is what he says next in verse 5. For the sake of his name among all the nations. So this is the overarching purpose for all that God does. It is to make his name great in the world. God is not just interested in having people here in the United States worship and glorify him. He doesn't just want those people in Latin America to glorify him. His heart is for the nations. That people from all tribes all tongues and languages would know him, would trust him, would obey him, and would glorify him. For he knows that that is what will lead to our greatest satisfaction and joy, both in this life and in the life to come. The glory of God. Lastly, here in verse 7, we have the greeting. The greeting that the Apostle Paul then gives to the church, this gospel-centered greeting to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Christ's apostle giving this greeting in the name of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking for them, giving them, giving the people of, of uh, believers in Rome their greeting. But he's not just writing this letter to everybody in the city of Rome. This letter was initially intended to be read by those in Rome, as it says, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That was Paul's way of saying this letter was for the Christians in Rome. Those who had heard the gospel of God and had come to follow Christ through the obedience of they had transformed, they had been, been transformed from sinners into saints, as it says here, by the grace of God through their faith in Christ. That is a biblical description of a Christian, one who is loved by God. 
So much so that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died for us. And now instead of being under God's wrath and condemnation, we will only experience the grace and peace of God. God's gospel transforms lives. It transformed Paul from one who tried to destroy the church to one who became the church's primary teacher of the gospel through this letter to the Romans. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you could testify to how the gospel transformed you from someone who lived for yourself to one who now lives for the Lord. This week in in, in my reading, I came across uh, the testimony of someone else who was transformed by the gospel that I really wanted to share with you as we close here. A man named uh, Alan Emery was a young Christian man who enlisted in the military the day after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. He served in the Coast Guard and was stationed in Boston, which is actually where he was from. And he tells the story of of, uh, one Friday evening when he was about to go on guard duty, guarding one of the wharfs there um, at the harbor. At Boston, one of his fellow uh, guardsmen, a man named Joseph Alzuski, Joseph Alzuski, he came by Emery's quarters, uh, looking very sharp and dapper in his full dress, Coast Guard blue uniform, and he was smiling from ear to ear. He wanted Emery to tell him how he looked. Emery said he looked great, and Emery asked him, what he was all dressed up for and why he was in such a good mood. Well, Joe ex- excitedly shared that the night before, um, not the n- night before at the USO gathering, he had met a wealthy girl and she had invited him to spend the weekend with her at her apartment. And she said she was going to take him out that night and that they could enjoy the weekend together because she said she had plenty of alcohol and plenty of records at her place. Now, for those of you born uh, after the year 1990, uh, records were how you listened to music back in the 1940s. So Joseph uh, didn't have to be back on base until 0700 on Monday morning, and so he said, this is going to be the greatest time of my life. And as he was about to leave, Emery told him that he would be praying for him. His friend Joe walked out the door, then suddenly stopped, and he immediately re-entered and asked, what did you say? I said I'd be praying for you, Emery replied. Well, why will you be praying for me when I'm going to have the first great weekend of my life, Joe asked. Emery said, because Joe, Monday morning... You'll be back aboard the ship, and you will not be the same person you are tonight. Sin leaves its mark. Joe's demeanor changed, and he responded by swearing at Emery and turned and went out into the night. And Emery prayed for Joe as he prepared to go on on guard duty, 
And he was startled when an unsmiling and agitated Joe suddenly reappeared in the guard post floodlights. How can you have a good time when someone's praying for you, he said. (laughs) You've ruined my weekend. I stood up my date, and I've been waiting for you to come on duty. Now tell me how to find God. And that night, Joseph Alzuski heard for the first time in his life the gospel of God, and he believed. And the change was immediate. He joined Park Street Church in Boston. He spent his free time on uh, the common, inviting other servicemen to services. He prayed with his buddies at St. Paul's Cathedral, which was always open. And he grew in his knowledge of the scriptures under Dr. Harold Ockengay, the pastor of Park Street Church. A couple years later, on February 1st, 1943, he volunteered for sea duty on a minesweeper headed for Iceland, and just a few days out of New York, a German torpedo sunk his ship. He died on February 3rd, 1943, serving his Lord and his country. The gospel of God transforms sinners into saints. It transforms those who live for their own pleasure and satisfaction into those who live to serve and please the Lord. It transforms those who are dead into those who are fully alive, who will then live even though they die. And that transformation is a reality for us only because of Jesus Christ our Lord who laid down his life so that we may truly live.